Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, April 14, 2019. The share ID numbers for Friday, April 12th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,776. That's 12776. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,778. That's 12778. This morning, A Vision for You presents Step 4, Disclosing Damaged or Unsaleable Goods. In Step 1, we conceded powerlessness, the realization that we are doomed. Lack of power is our dilemma. In Step 2, we learned that our higher power, which is deep down within us, was blocked off from us because of the calamities, pomp, and worship of other things. The big book promises that working the 12 steps will remove these blocks that keep us from our higher power, however we have conceived it, and that higher power will enter into our lives and restore us to sanity. The task at hand is to get rid of the blocks. Step four begins this process of unblocking. The fourth step brings us to a specific course of action that the big book describes as vigorous, which strengthens the decision we made in the third step and helps us carry it out. According to the big book, unless we make a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us, our decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him can have little permanent effect. Joining us this morning to speak on Step 4 is Kim G., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Kim is dedicated to living the 12-step life and very devoted to carrying this message of recovery. So let's crack open this text with Kim G. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kim G., and I, I am a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey area. Like, first, I want to qualify. You know, I, I came into Overeaters Anonymous in 1994, and um, my, I have been recovered in accidents since January of 2011. You know, um, I, at, in my mid-20s, I was a size 24, and I would walk up a flight of stairs and have to stop to catch my breath because of all the extra weight I was carrying. But I've also been a size 2 and underweight, and after walking up a flight of steps, had to stop because I was so weak because I wasn't barely eating anything. I've also been a size 10, which is my current um, size, as a bulimic and an exercise bulimic, and I would run 10 miles, and I wouldn't be able to walk up steps because my hips would hurt so bad because of the, the uh, damage I would do with my over-exercising. So, you know, um, I love how Leah summarized the first three steps, and I think that's important. So on page 63, at the end of step three, the last two lines on that page says, next we launched on a vigorous course of action. And launch is a pretty action word. So why are we launching? So I, too, wanted to kind of summarize those first three steps. What have we learned up to page 63 that's going to get us into a place where we're going to launch into these uh, steps? So in the doctor's opinion, I'm given my diagnosis. I'm given a diagnosis of an allergy of the body, which means when I ingest certain substances, certain foods, I cannot reasonably predict what's going to happen. 
But even more dastardly, I have this mental twist that even when I'm abstinent, my mind tells me to go back to the food. And that is not true of, of a lot of people that are fat and a lot of people that are overeat. And it, it's basically 10% of the people that overeat. So I'm asking myself, am I part of that 10%? And then in Bill's story, we're given a beautiful example of that progression of the illness, going from chronic excitement to necessity to oblivion. And there is a solution we're trying to start out. Again, are we part of that 10% or are we part of the 90%? Are we the moderate eater, the heavy eater, where diets do work? If you decrease your calories and increase your exercise, you will lose weight. And if you're part of that 90%, you can do that. And then more about alcoholism, which if I had you know, control of the universe, I would rename this chapter, Why I Come to Overeaters Anonymous. Because even abstinence, I can't stay abstinent. This is, the whole chapter is about the insanity of being sober and taking that first strike. And that brings me to the conclusion that I'm powerless. The, the most direct way I've ever heard it described is I am a compulsive overeater because I cannot eat my binge food safely and I cannot be absolutely contently. And that conclusion propelled me to step two because if I'm powerless, the default position is I need a power. And we agnostic, it's not about religion, it's not even about a belief in God. It's a conclusion that lack of power is my dilemma, and if lack of my power is my dilemma, I'm going to find a, I need to find a way by which I can live. And that power needs to be greater than myself because all my step one experiences have proven me that I can't do it on my own. And that conclusion propels me to step three for a decision. And I can't turn anything over in step three, which was a prejudice of my own. In pages 60 to 63, I'm seeing what life is like when Kim's in charge, that I'm selfish and self-centered, that I'm self-willed on rise. And based on the information in those pages, I make the decision to learn a new way of living. And because of that anxiety, that crisis I'm feeling within myself with those first three steps, that's where I get to page 63 that I'm now willing to launch, launch onto a vigorous form of action. So I just want to talk a little bit about the prejudices I had about step, step four prior to really studying and becoming a student of this big book. First of all, I thought that the inventory was only step four, and the inventory is the inventory process of step four through nine. I thought step four was simply an autobiography. If I could understand my history, then I could change it. I thought that the longer my step four was, the better it was. I thought I had to be abstinent for six months before I could start it. And I thought I had to write for six months or a year to show that I was being thorough. Now, on page 64 at the top, it says, though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking it. You know, and I often talk about the fact that in over a five-year period, I had decided to go to grad school at least a dozen times. I never went to grad school. It wasn't until I made that decision and took action. I had to find out what schools offered the, the courses I wanted. I had to find out about tuition reimbursement from my employer, see how much money I could afford. I had been out of school for 20 years. I had to take the GREs. And then taking the action, I got into grad school. Didn't mean I got a graduate degree. In fact, a graduate degree is 60 credits. I could take 120 credits and still not get a graduate degree 
because in order to get the degree I wanted, I had to take specific courses and I had to take prerequisites. And that explained to me too why I wasn't getting released from this disease because I was doing all the things I wanted to do except the steps. And I wanted to treat the steps like, oh, okay, today I'll, I'll try some step 10, even though I've never learned the skill set of four through nine. So it says in the top of 64, again, in that first paragraph, a business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. So this four through nine process is simply a skill set. So let's say you want to be a nurse. If you go to nursing school and you get your degree and you take your boards and you get your certificate, but you never go into a hospital, do you really feel you're a nurse? When you become a nurse is when you're in a hospital and you take that skill set you learned in a clinical setting and now you're using it in real time. So this skill set that we're learning in four through nine had depth and weight when we actually turn it over, which is in steps 10 and 11. That same paragraph talks about being fact-finding and fact-facing. I think one of the reasons people are so afraid of step four is because we think it's so overly emotional and we eat over our emotions, so therefore it's too difficult to do. This is fact-finding fact and fact-facing. We're here to discover the truth. It says here one object is to disclose damage or unsaleable goods and to get rid of them promptly and without regret. You know, in high school, I worked in a department store in, a, uh, in the handbag department, and we had different types of inventories. There were some inventories that uh, we would just count the number of persons that we had. There were some inventories that we would, we would count the, the, the ones that were selling best so we could get more of them in. And there were some inventories that we would look at what was not selling so we could put them on clearance and get rid of them to make room for the stuff that was selling. So they're saying here that the one object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods. I'll tell you my experience, my one object, the first time I did a fourth step, was to make my sponsor hate these people as much as I did. It was to prove why I had no choice but to eat. I would list my assets, which my assets aren't blocking me. That was a waste of time. I would, I would thought that if I wrote a five-subject notebook, of, of the inventory and you only wrote a three subject notebook and then I did a better one. And if I can remember every moment of my life, that was it. Nope, this is a very simple process. So when I look at this, these three different inventories, what I'm trying to do is what is taking up rent in my head right now? What is blocking me from God? If I have someone that, that made fun of me in third grade and I haven't thought about it since fourth grade, there's no reason to put it in my inventory. And I think sometimes people are afraid, well, if I don't put it in there, it's not going to get resolved. Believe me, if it's bothering you, it'll hit you in step 10. So what you want to do is look at what is taking me up right in my head. And for me personally, what I think of is I went to Catholic school for 12 years. And in, in first, second, and third grade, we had to go to confession once a week with the priest. And as a young six, seven, eight-year-old, I used to make up sins. Because I didn't, what does a seven-year-old do? But I'm supposed to confess sins, so I would make up sins to tell the priest. We're not here to create stuff that isn't there. What is taking up rent in your head? Now, for me personally, this is my opinion. I would like to differentiate that. One of the things I like to do is I like to make an appointment for the fifth step as soon as we start the instructions for the fourth step. And that's because, because we want to get rid of them promptly without regret that I don't want people sitting in this fourth step too long. I want them to get out. My, my, a good friend of mine talks about that the fourth step is like sitting in a puppy diaper, and we don't want to sit in that too long. Once again, going back to my Catholic roots, right now with Lent, 
And I could give that chocolate for Lent because I knew on Easter morning that I would get that, that, that basket full of chocolate. Well, one of the things I talk about is if you, don't, if, if you know that at step 12, you're going to get relief, you're much more willing to be uncomfortable. If I know where my fifth step is, I'm much more willing to be uncomfortable while I write all these lists. So it talks about, again, in page 64, that um, being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what defeated us, we considered it common manifestation. And that's why those first three steps are so critical. It's not I was defeated by food. Food, had, food died in step, in step one. I'm defeated by self. It's my sobriety that is my problem. And the way that self is manifested is three different inventories in here. We're going to look at our resentments. We're going to look at our fears, and we're going to look at our sex conduct. So the first one we're going to look at is resentment, which starts on page 64. Now I'm going to step back from it because there's a sentence in here that I think a lot of people are misconstrue, or actually I've, I've seen people justify. So in that last paragraph on page 64, it says, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And I've heard big book meetings justify the fact that, well, see, you can keep eating while doing your inventory because first we straighten out spiritually by doing the steps, and then we straighten out physically by getting abstinent. And that is not what this is saying. First, I have to be physically abstinent, and then I address the mental part of my disease by a spiritual malady, by spiritual, the spiritual process. And what it means by straightening out physically is if you have 150 pounds to lose, you're not going to lose that by the time you finish the steps. You finish the steps, have a spiritual awakening, and you will, because you're abstinent, you're going to eventually lose that weight. I have bulimics that I work with that have dental problems that last for years because of the swelling up. They will straighten out physically for that. I know people that do these steps, and their and their lot of their medications are relieved as they as they have lost the weight. So I just want to make it clear, that does not justify eating while you're doing the inventory. It's letting us know that when we have the spiritual awakening, that process afterwards is going to help us so that I'm less angry, less resentful, less, um, you know, fearful. So let's look at these resentments. First of all, these are columns. So what we're going to do is we're not going to work these, these four columns by right to left. We're going to work, work them top to bottom. So we're going to, that, and that's what's going to allow us to be fact-finding and fact-facing. Because when I work it left to right, what happens is I get really emotionally and emotionally charged. And once again, we're not supposed to be doing that. So the first column is, who am I mad at? What, what ticks me off? What in, throughout my day is taking up rent in my head for free? So we're going to look at people, individuals institutions or principles. So institutions are simply groups of people. You know, right now, when, you know, April 15th is, is on Monday, it might be the IRS. You know, if, if, um, if you're a Republican, it might be the Democratic Party. If you're a Democrat, it might be the Republican Party. One of my silly ones was cheerleaders and football players because I was a dork in high school and I hated the popular kids. It might be Overeaters Anonymous. It might be a certain religion, even your own religion, any group. And then principles are things that you wish weren't true that maybe you think are. One of my simple ones was the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. So we're going to list those things. 
Um, it talks about here, uh, then the next thing we have is, is why we were angry. Now, the Joe and Charlie thing, if you look at page 65, is that the longest cause is 19 words. So I give my sponsors 20 words. Because if we start to write paragraphs about this, we're going to get charged up, we're going to get emotional, and really what happens is we start to justify our resentment. So, for example, with me, one of my resentments was my mother, and the cause was she treats me like a child. Now, what happens is I want to give you 500 examples of how she treated me like a child to prove that I'm right. But the simple resentment is she treated me like a child. And the third column is how it affects me. And the way that I personally could do it is I don't have people write about it. I have them acknowledge it. Because when you're right about it, you get emotionally charged up again. So does it affect my self-esteem, how I feel about me? Check, no check, yes or no. My security, less safety, can be emotional security, physical security, financial security, yes or no. My ambitions, what I want out of the future, does it make me anxious about I'm not going to get what I need in the future? Personal or sex relations, check or no check, and does it exhibit fear? Check when I check. And you can see that this is not going to take a lot of time to get through these first three columns. And once again, I sit down, I do the first column, take a break, whatever that is for you. Whether it's 20 minutes, go back to the second column, or the next day, go back to the second column, write the cause. And then if, when you're writing the cause, you think of another re resentment, add that to the list. Take that break, do the third column. Now, what I realized for myself. If you look at um, the top of 65, 66, the first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got, and the usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us, and they continued to we continue, and and we continued to stay sore. Personally, this is what I realized that. That was every diary I ever had when I was a kid. I would write down at night, you know, this girl made fun of me, and da 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 and this is how it affected me. And this explained to me personally, again, why the autobiography not brought me no relief. When I did the autobiography, or for me personally answering 175 questions in a workbook, is it reinforced my resentment. It reinforced my fears. It reinforced my sex conduct. It warned us again at the next first full paragraph on 66. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. So, for slight extent that we permit these to be squandered the hours that might have been worthwhile. What I realized was happy I lived in 2019 if I'm dragging around the 1980s. I'm seeing how futile and fatal this is. And this is not, they're not messing around because the rest of that paragraph tells us. If we choose to do that, if we choose to live in these resentments, it's infinitely grave, it's fatal, we die, and it is poison. You know, one of the lines I love in that second full paragraph is the, um, that anger is the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. I had to recognize that. As a compulsive overeater, I can't sit in anger. Other people can. I have a lot of stuff going on at work, and there's a lot of justified anger going on at work. They can do that. I don't have the option because I get restless irritable discontent, and I will eat over that anger. It is poison to me. 
We go to that last full paragraph in 66. It says, we turn back to the list, for it is the key to the future. We are prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. You know, I often um, heard, you know, we're looking for my part. And if I have a part, it must mean you have a part. And that's very technical, very accusatory. I love the language of the big book. I have to look at it from an entirely different angle. And there was an AA speaker that put it beautifully. Think of it like a court case. So the first three columns, I'm the prosecuting attorney. I'm saying who is guilty, what they did, and how it affected society. And as I switch from the third column to the fourth column, look at it from an entirely different angle, I now become a defense attorney. And I have to look at that case from an entirely different angle. That helped me uh, understand why, how powerful that fourth column was. Continuing with that paragraph, we began to see the world and its people dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancy or real, had the power to actually kill. How can I be available to my current boyfriend if I'm still driving around relationships from 10, 15 years ago? You know, I often use the example, I had really bad teeth as a kid. I wore braces for, for seven years. And when I got my braces off and I was in college and someone would tell me I had a nice smile, I would be panicked because I knew they were making fun of me. So those kids at 10 had more power over me at 25 than when they teased me when I was 10. I didn't want to have power over me anymore. And this idea of fancy to real, I often use this example. I come from a, a, a large Irish Catholic family, and, and we would get together with my mom's family, and I would try to be a good little girl, and my mom inevitably would come over to me and say, that's it, we're out of here. And she would take us out. And I couldn't figure out what I did wrong. And the next time we got together, I would try to be more good and quiet and stay in the corner and not be noticed. And my mom would come over to me again and say, that's it, we're out of here. And we would leave. And because my mother's also in LA, I asked her about it. I said, Mom, do you remember what that's about? She said, I don't know, Kim, let me think about it. And she came back to me a couple days later and said, Kim, I think I know what that was. You know, my mom's father was an active alcoholic until the day he died, never got sober, never went to AA. And she said when we were got together, she knew which beer was going to put her father over the edge. And she never wanted her children exposed to her dad that way. So when she saw him take that beer, she would come over to us kids and she would say, that's it, we're out of here. It had nothing to do with me. Yet I had taken that identity, and I still do that. When I get into a group of people I don't know, I try to stay quiet and stay in the corner and not get in trouble. And I have to remind myself that's not necessary today. Now, in addition to that, I talked to my brother, who's a year and a half younger than me, and asked him about this. And it's not even on his radar. He doesn't remember this. And not only do I have that's how I experienced it as a child versus an adult, but my keen alcoholic mind as a child is very different than someone who does not have this problem when their brother didn't even notice it. So let's go into now. There's going to be a prayer because we need prayer prior to going to this fourth column. So the prayer is the bottom of 66 into 67. This was our course. We realized that people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms, which is column two, and the way they disturbed us, which is column three, they, like ourselves, were sick too. I don't know about you, but I know for me, when I have been a jerk, when I have acted out, 
it's because I'm hurting. It's because I'm angry. It's because I'm sad. I never lashed at anybody when I feel good about myself or I'm content. Can't I think the same thing for other people? It's the same, that simple saying, hurt people, hurt people. Continuing with the prayer, we ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we should cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man, how can I be helpful to him? Once again, this is how I have personalized that prayer. My youngest brother is learning disabled. He's 46 years old, and he reads at like a second or third grade level. And we go into a restaurant, and he gets confused by the menu, and I can see the waiters and waitresses getting annoyed with him, thinking he's being a jerk. And I can see the moment that they understand he's not a jerk, he's having a hard time reading the menu. And they become so wonderful and accommodating, and it's beautiful to watch. So I thought to myself, what if, what if I treated the world the way I wish the world treated my brother? What if I treated the world as if they had a disability that I couldn't see? And my life has changed because of that. I don't know what other people are going through. Maybe that person who cut me off in traffic just found out that their father had a heart attack and they're trying to get to the, uh, get to the hospital. I have no idea. And the last line of this prayer, God save me from being angry, thy will be done. I have to tell you, that really is my sick man's prayer. I don't say a lot of it in the first part, because what I have realized for myself is that if God can save me from being angry, then everybody can be the biggest jerks in the world. My, my peace of mind is not dependent on how other people act. If God can save me from my reaction to other people, then I can find peace. So let's look at that fourth column. So now that our hearts started to change and we're looking at it from an entirely different angle, we have four columns. Where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? And once again, to me, this is just bullet points. So Lori C., um, I've been to a couple of his weekends, and he really helped me understand these words in a different way. And I don't even know if this is what he said, but this is what I heard. Selfish and self-seeking. The big book doesn't really differentiate between the two, but this is how I personalize it. Selfish is, I'm a two-year-old child, and I have a toy, and no one's going to get that toy because it's mine, 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 mine. Self-seeking is, I'm a two-year-old kid, and my friend has a toy. I'm going to do whatever I can to get that toy away from him. So selfish is looking internally, and self-seeking is looking externally. But I tell the people I work with, as long as you see self I don't get really twisted about having to have selfish and self-seeking. Then dishonest, once again, that was hard for me because I was so afraid of God. I was so afraid of this. I had a retributional God in my head that I was cash register honest. And Lori gave two great definitions of dishonesty, which in, honest, which in all honesty is a lot of my 10 and 11 work. Dishonesty is not seeing the world for the way it is, but the way I want it to be. So a lot of my dishonesty with my mother was I wanted her to be Carol Brady. But she wasn't. She was Joan. And I, even today, I realize when I hang out with Joan, I have a great time. She's silly. She's goofy. Loves to be the center of attention. When I hang out with Kim's mother, I am miserable because I hate being the center of attention. I feel like she's a reflection on me. And the other one is dishonesty is not telling truth when the truth needs to be told. 
because I don't like to be uncomfortable. I don't want to say things that are uncomfortable. A lot of my 10 work at work, a lot of my step 10 work at my office in my job is speaking up, is saying what I need, because I have this habit of thinking people should read my mind because I don't want to be uncomfortable saying something. And then fear is fear. So let me give you one example from my, my inventory to see how this works. So the example is who am I mad at? My freshman roommate on the college, Lori. The cause, one day I'm sitting in, my, in our dorm room and she, the door flies open and she jumps me and starts beating me up. A guy across the hallway has to pull her off. Campus police is called. She gets removed from my room. It affects my self-esteem. It affects my security. It affects my interpersonal relations. I definitely fear was involved. But I do this work. I do the prayer, and I try to look at it from an entirely different angle. Now, let me tell you, when I went to college, I was a dork. I had never smoked a cigarette. I had never had a drink. I had never kissed a boy. And on top of that, I'm, I'm obese. And in walks this girl I've never met because we were slime roommates, and she's tall, and she's blonde, and she's beautiful, and the guys love her. So my selfishness is I want to be around the cute boys, so I want to be around her. My dishonesty was, I didn't like her. She was not a nice person, but I used her. My self-seeking is, I'm going to be popular by proxy with her. And my fear is, I'm not good enough, and I couldn't make friends on my own. And I started to look at that circumstance. So this is February in New Jersey, and my, the, Lori has an official boyfriend, and she cheats on him all the time, and I'm being her friend. I keep all the alibi, like I cover for her. And she is, it's um, Valentine's Day weekend. She's supposed to go um, out with her boyfriend, but she gets an offer from a guy like 15 years older than us to go to Bermuda. So she lies to him and says she's going home to her family instead. And she comes back to New Jersey in February with a tan. And her boyfriend, Ed, asked me, Kim, what's going on? Now, once again, dishonesty, the only boys I talk to are boys through her. And I sort of had a crush on Ed. So I tell him all her secrets. I betray every confidence that she had. And she comes back from her class to see her boyfriend. He breaks up with her and tells her everything that I said. So she comes down to beat up her friend who betrayed her. Boy, that's a different story than I was telling myself for 20 years. And suddenly, I want to apologize to my, my roommate. So that's the power of this. Now, one thing I like to always say, this is my opinion. It's unusual for me to get phone calls for people to ask me to help them with their fourth column. I think that opinions can be very frightening in Overeaters Anonymous. We have a lot of them. I think it's better that we speak through our experience. So I tell my sponsors, don't ask people for help on your fourth column. Ask them for experience of taking you through some of their resentments. And they might take you through a resentment for their mother, and you're thinking, oh, my God, that's exactly what's going on with a coworker. So let's now go into the fear inventory. Now, this for me is the beauty, the brilliance of the big book. Because what I learned by going through this process is that when I look at my resentments, I realize my resentments are covering my anger. And in that sick man's prayer, God saves me from being angry. And what I find when I deal with my anger is my anger is really covering my fear. After all, in step three, we're told that we're driven, driven by a hundred forms of fear. And we, so now we have this fear inventory. And it talks about in here that um, 
And you think that fear ought to be classed with feeling. It seems to cause more trouble. Another AA speaker I love, he talked about that this idea of stealing is that the inventories are basically about not getting my way. So when I don't get in my way in the past, it's a resentment. When I don't get my way in the future, it's a fear. And what that does is it steals the present moment. I can never be in the present. So let's look at, let's look at this fear inventory. So the first column is, what is the fear? And the second column is, why do I have the fear? So once again, Lori, Lori C., he gave some good examples for me because I, I am so driven by fear, I can't even identify why it's coming at me. So he gave me two um, tools to look at. So the first one is, I'm not sure why I have the fear. And play the fear out to the worst case scenario. So one of my fears was never getting married. Why do I have that fear? Play it out to the worst case scenario. Because I'm going to die alone. Now let me tell you personally for me, as soon as I said that aloud, I'm like, that has nothing to do with getting married. I could get married and get divorced. That could die before me. I have brothers. I have nieces. I have nephews. I'm not dying alone. Honestly, that fear kind of dissipated with that. Another fear I have is being laughed at. And one of the other tips he gave is, when did you first feel the fear? I had to think about it. And when I was in grammar school, we had a little um, like talent show that we did for um, a nursing home, and I did a dance. And when I did a dance, I found all the kids laughed at me. And I started to realize when I feel like I'm going to be laughed at, I do feel like a little kid. And sometimes it's just real obvious. I have a fear of snakes. And when I was about eight or nine years old, I'm out in my backyard in bare feet, and a garter snake crawled over my feet, and I screamed, and my big, big, burly dad came out, and he took a shovel, and he cut the garter snake in half, and even though it was in half, the mask of the snake kept opening and closing, and I thought, oh, my God, you can't kill snakes. So it was pretty reasonable why I was afraid of snakes. So on page 68, that second full paragraph, it says, perhaps there is a better way. Now, the, word, the definition of perhaps is something open to doubt or conjecture. And I have to tell you, I'm really leaning into this mode in my 10 or 11 mark. You know, perhaps I was wrong. Perhaps this isn't so. This, to me, is about my old thinking. And that's exactly what 4 through 9 was trying to do, was trying to unravel this thinking. And in the same paragraph, it talks about infinite God versus finite self. And when I think about it, I often think of a story my mother told me where um, she said that she was, I, they took a long time to get pregnant with me. I, I was born when they were married for five years. And this daughter came and it was a miracle. And she immediately got pregnant with my brother and she was terrified. How can she split her love because she loves this little girl so much? And she said the moment she put my brother in her arms, she realized that love was multiplication, not division. And that, to me, is infinite God versus finite self. Once again, with getting married, if I think love is finite, and every time I see a friend get married, it means there's less love in the world for me. But if I believe God is infinite, it's showing me there's more love in the world and available for me. You know, I think about this sometimes in a vision for you when people see these recovered people, and they think, why them, not me? Infinite love, the people in the line who are recovered are demonstrating that it can be you. And it talks here about matching calamity with serenity. Now, for me personally, again, 
that they turn in the back of the book, which is in sort of the direction. The book to talk about life on life's terms. Well, to me, life on life's terms means power, property, prestige, self-compulsion. That's the reason I eat. I can't live life on life's terms. With infinite God versus finite self, I'm not going to live life on life's terms anymore. I'm going to live life on God's terms. So now we have a prayer for this. And the prayer here is on page 68 where it says, we ask him to remove our fears and direct our attention to what he would have us be. And then the last column is, what would he have us be? Now, often people will put in the last column, trust and rely on God, trust and rely on God, which is absolutely true. But what I find more beneficial is, let's assume God removed the fear. What would that look like that God had us do? So I'll give you my three examples again. On my fear of marriage, what would God have me do? He would have me enjoy being single while being opened up to being in a relationship. What would God have me be about being laughed at, recognize I'm a human being, and be willing to make mistakes? What would God have me be about snakes? God, to be honest with you, when I go to the zoo, I don't go to the motel house. So it can be that simple. So let's move on to the sex conduct. And the old Joe and Charlie joke is, if you want to know where the sex stuff is, it's on page 69. So this is about sex conduct, not the sex act. This is asking us, how do I behave in relationship with attraction? This is, we are not the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct, which means you're not trying to line yourself up with society or your sponsor. You're aligning yourself up with your higher power. I also want you guys to expand this. Expand this, that you know, not just about the sex act again. Is your guy who has a crush on you at work, and you're kind of using that to get him to do stuff for you? You know, with our disease, we often, it's often manifested on our body. So how do we feel about ourselves as a sexual being? If we're in a relationship, are we using sex as a reward or a punishment? Or if we gain weight, it's because how we feel about our body depriving our partner of the medicine. So I'll just give you one little example to kind of see how you look at this more globally. So, um, one of my things on my sex conduct was my girlfriend. See, I never even dated or kissed a boy until I was boy, God, I'm, well, I was 26, I guess I meant at that point. Um, because I was so obese. And when I lost the weight, troubling them, not in a healthy way, I was terrified, terrified of the attention I was getting from men. So what I would do was I started with my friends' husbands and their boyfriends. Nothing would happen, but was, I felt safe because nothing would happen. Well, that's really disrespectful to my girlfriend, so I had to put them on my list. So it says here, in other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. So we're doing this in columns again, right? Not left to right, top to bottom. First column is who? Who did we hurt? The second column is where were we selfish, dishonest, and inconsiderate, right? Some bullet points. Now, inconsiderate is a new word. For me personally, I think inconsiderate is the opposite of self-seeking. In self-seeking, I'm trying to get something from you. When I'm inconsiderate, I am not even considering how you feel. And then we're just going to acknowledge, so once again, we're not writing about this part, I'm going to acknowledge the of jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness. Now, we had a sick man's prayer, right, in the remembrance. We had a fear prayer in the fears. 
now we're going to have three prayers in the, in the sex bond book. Because relationships are difficult. So let's look at these three prayers. On page 69, in the second full paragraph, we subjected each relation to this test, was it selfish or not? Here's the first prayer. We ask God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. In the next paragraph, which is the last full paragraph on page 69, the last couple sentences, in meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. And then on page 70, in that second full paragraph, we earnestly, earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, and for the strength to do the right thing. So this ideal, it was very easy for me to get an ideal for a relationship. He had to be over six feet tall. He had to be blonde hair and blue eyes. I prefer like a circle void, um, you know, build. That's not what they're saying here. They're not saying what type of boyfriend do I want. They're saying what kind of girlfriend do I want to do. You know, the first time I did these steps, not through the big book, the joke was I had dated five Kevin in a row. And in between, I dated a Kelvin. And I had the number, Kevin number one, Kevin number two, Kevin number three. And what I realized by doing that is they were all the same guy. See, I had this very sick interview process. And if they weren't sick enough, I didn't go out with them. I remember a sponsor saying to me, you know, that I was complaining about all these losers I was going out with. And my sponsor said, Kim, the problem isn't that the losers are asking you out. The problem is you're saying yes when they do. And what I have found is when I become the girlfriend I want to be, I naturally start to attract those type of guys. When I was sick, I would attract sick people. So I want to step back a minute and talk about, because remember, this is a skill set, right? We're learning the skill set. And step 10, the sex conduct, really, in my, in my experience, becomes relationships in general. So what I have done is I have created ideals for all areas of my life. I have an ideal of a daughter. And just recently, with everything that's going on with my parents, is I have created, I used to have one general daughter one. I really have to have an ideal of a daughter to my father and a daughter of my mother as they age. And it's, it's, and it's once again, we have to, these ideals change as my parents are aging, they're changing. In fact, I'm, I, I, today my dad's coming over, um, and I'm doing a lot of prayer on it to see how I can be helpful to him today. As an employee, I have an ideal. Once again, I have an employee, I'm an ideal as a power worker, and I have an ideal as an employee to my boss. And over here is anonymous. I have multiple ideals. Who am I? I'm a vision for you. What is my ideal as a member of a vision for you? What is my ideal for my homework in Cherry Hill, New Jersey? What is my ideal of OA as a whole? And in a lot of that, accepting my limitations. My brother Scott, my brother Scott who's learning disabled, I have an ideal for him as a sister, which a lot of it might be more maternal, not just sisterly. But my brother also works with me. He's a custodian at my office, so I have an ideal for myself and him as a coworker. And that's tough. When that sister coworker ideals rub up against each other, that's a tough thing. So relationships change, and therefore my ideals change. So in step 11, there's two questions that really help me. It's to ask me in the nightly review, what could I have done better? and what corrective measures should be taken. So what that does for me is I look at what is my current behavior as a daughter, an employee, a member of OA, and a sister. Not my intentions. I want a great intention. But what is my current behavior? And then I look at my ideal, 
And the difference between the two is where I have to work is. My corrective measures for, for tomorrow, how can I grow towards that ideal? And then after the prayer, we have that last comment, what should I have done instead? What should I have done instead is in alignment with what my ideal is. So I'm going to wrap up here on page 70. On page 70, the first column says, suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us, though, that this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we have learned our lesson. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to get drunk. We are not theorizing either facts out of our experience. So this to me is a general warning, not just for the sex conduct, but for the inventory in general, and for me, what happens when we don't do 10 and 11. So, for example, where do I fall short? One of my, the ways that I always act out was gossip. And that means if I've done these steps, I never gossip. Hell no. But, does that mean if I gossip, I'm going to eat again? Doesn't necessarily say so. If I gossip and I do this work and I correct that and I make my amends, I'm not going to eat again. For example, what's going on at work right now, if I say, screw it, my company deserves that gossip, and I'm just going full force into the gossip, am I going to eat again? Absolutely. Because I will get blocked. And if I am blocked from that power, I'm going to eat again. So I'm going to jump to the spiritual experience on page 567. I remember when this was pointed out to me. Um, and I work with a lot of people that relapse, so I always like to point this out. And I mean relapse as far as being recovered and relapsing, as opposed to, you know, what I did, dabble in the steps and, and keep eating, which in my opinion is just a progression of the illness. Um, so the first paragraph on page 567, the term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book upon careful reading, so that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. So it's sufficient to bring about recovery. It doesn't say that it's sufficient to maintain recovery. So the steps will bring about a spiritual awakening. It is us living in these steps in 10, 11, and 12. It's me taking these, these steps through our process, moving into 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and then using that in 10, 11, which is going to allow me to continue to be recovered. If we drop down to the first full paragraph on page um, 70, if we've been thorough about our personal inventory, I kind of think of these as the four-step promises. So if we've been thorough about our personal inventory, we've written down a lot. Once again, not written down a lot like I wrote a five-perfect notebook, but thoroughly, if I follow the directions specifically. I like to go off on tangents. I like to find loopholes. But the question is, that specifically do these directions? We have listed and analyzed our resentments, once again, not emotional. And we've begun to comprehend the futility and fatality. We have commenced to see the terrible destructiveness. I definitely saw that. I definitely saw that I was an architect of my own misery. I definitely saw that this was a self-imposed crisis, that I was dragging around these resentments that, you know, hadn't happened in decades, and I was using them as my identity. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill to all men, even our enemies, for we have looked at them as sick people. 
We have listed the people we have heard by our comments and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. Once again, when I write a diary, I get more angry, more resentful. When I do it, look at it from an entirely different angle, suddenly I want to go to these people and apologize. I want to, I want to make it right of my behavior. So if we go down to the top of page 71, it says, we hope you are convinced that God can remove whatever self-love has blocked you, not me. This fourth step is not about figuring it out so I can change it. It's about acknowledging those blocks so that God can remove them. If you've already made a decision and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, once again, this isn't grosser. This is not about every minutiae of our life. That's why I only have my sponsee stay in the inventory for seven to ten days. Let's get those grosser, those billers out of the way, and those smaller rocks and pebbles you'll deal with in 10 and 11. You have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested the big chunks of truth, truth about yourself. So let's remember the inventory is steps four through nine, that it's simply three sets of lists, that we do it promptly and without regret. And this is only a skill set that has definitely when we implement it in 10 and 11. And thanks so much, everyone, for listening, and I pass. And thank you, Kim, for your very helpful and instructive presentation this morning on Step 4. So very valuable. We're grateful to have this archived on our website. Thank you so much. Kim G's contact information will be available on at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. We're going to now transition to a question and answer segment, and you can pose a question to Kim by pressing star 1 to unmute. Please give me your name and the first letter of your last name. Kathy K. Kathy E. Kathy Hello, K. Beverly, Beverly R. from Gatesburg, Maryland. Beverly Raj G. S. Raj G. Beverly. Was I heard Beverly R? Yes, thank you, Beverly. And I got you. Thank Marissa. you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And Devora. Who else? Jason Judith K. R. Did I hear Jason back there? Jason K, yes. Yep. Thanks, Jason. And who did I just miss? Judith R. Judith R. Okay, that's a great group to start with. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Did you hear Marissa E? I did. Thank you, Marissa. Okay. Yep, you're second in line. Thank you. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So let's start off. It goes Kathy K, Marissa E, Beverly R, Roz G, Devora S, Jason K, and Judith R. Everybody, please mute except for Kathy K. Go right ahead with your question. Thank you, Leah, for all of your service. And thanks, Kim, so much. It was great to hear you this morning. And what I wanted to ask you about is, as someone who's who did this work a while back, um, do you do periodically another fourth step, or you just use 10, 11, and 12? I'd be interested whether you actually officially do another fourth step periodically. Thanks, Kathy. You know, it's, it's so funny. I think sometimes even big bookers, all against big bookers, you know, like, oh, I only live in 10, 11, and 12, or I redo the 4 through 9, you know, you're like, I'm so, I don't care how people label it. My feeling is just, are you in your inventories? Are you staying on what? You know, for me personally, 10, 11, and 12 is me doing a 4 through 9, 
And if something is persistent, maybe I'll take out my forms that I have in step four and try to dig a little deeper and talk to somebody. But my thing is results. Whatever brings you freedom, if you feel the need to go back once a year and do a thorough course for knowing and get freedom from that, go for it. If you're someone that stays current between 10, 11, and 12 and never says they need to go back to the forms, go for it. So I think it's more gauged by what gives you freedom. And I think that we need to get past the mechanics to the experience. So if you are someone who's, who's very um, convinced that it's only 10, 11, and 12, and if you're getting less of irritable discontent, maybe you need to be open to doing another course of mine. Um, so I, I don't like to label it, but my feeling is someone who doesn't take a regular inventory usually goes broke means what brings you freedom and how you want to label it is, is really, I think, an individual thing because we, we just want to make sure that we remain on blocks and we don't need again. Right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kathy K. Marissa E., your turn. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Kim. Um, so, Kim, speaking of Step 10, how do you work a Step 10? Because I remember in a previous share you talked about flashcards at the beginning. So I was wondering if you could just walk us through um, what it looked like when you started doing Step 10s and what it looks like today. Um, I, I really want to say Step 4 questions because I, I think it's important that we talk about what the topic is. But just to say Step 10 is the title for the 4 through 9. So I just want to stress that I don't know how to do a Step 10 until I get to Step 10. So mm -hmm. I, take myself, I take myself through 4, which is where I'm looking for selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and fear. And I, well, flashcards, this was just before I had an app. I used to just take an index card into the bathroom at work, and every couple of hours I would write S-E-R-S, selfish, dishonest, resentful, and fearful, and write that down. Because for me personally, anxiety was such my normal state that I couldn't tell when I was disturbed. So it just was um, very um, helpful for me just to practice the skill set over and over again. So in step four, I'm looking at my resentment, my fear, and my sex conduct, and I take that into step 10. But just doing that isn't enough. I have to now ask God to remove those steps, which becomes my, my fourth column on selfishness, selfish, resentful, fearful. I ask God to remove them at once. I speak to another person to help me get objectivity because the reason we need step five is in my own head, I'm just going to justify these three, these three, um, these three uh, inventories. And then I'm going to make amends because I can't sit in, in guilt and shame for long. And then I'm going to regularly turn myself to someone I can help because the only way that I can not think about me is to think about someone else. So step 10 is basically a real-time look at what is where it is blocked, as opposed to step four through mine is I get to look back about what's been bothering me over the last 20 or 30 years. So my step 10 is simply implementing what I'm learning in step through mine. Thank you. Thanks, Marissa E. Beverly R. One to unmute. Hello, my name is Beverly R. Yes, I don't know if this is related to what you are talking about, but I don't know if you have an answer for this. Um, I am sort of struggling in relapse right now, and there is this item of food that I don't want to give up because it's supposed to be healthy. It was 
is actually I can tell you what it is without men mentioning too too much specifics. A probiotic that and when I ate it it gave me a lot of energy and it said gluten free. I said, Uh oh, something is wrong, it tastes too nice and it had sugar in it and but it gave me an energy boost. So I am just I have problems that I I get tired very easily, so um I I know that I'm also anemic. So what would what what sort of food would you suggest? Even one or two. I know it's not you weren't talking about this, but it's something that affects me personally. Or maybe um or should I call you afterwards for us to talk about this? Do you have a sponsor, Beverly? Well, I'm, I don't have a sponsor right now. I'm in, in the process of finding a new sponsor. I, I'm my The first person I talked said I should talk to an, a number of persons before, and, and, and suggestion then we... Is, yeah. My suggestion is you get a sponsor, because that's the person mm-hmm. who should be helping you with that. You know, mm-hmm. I know that um, the shrimp is a really healthy option for protein, if you have an allergy and you have an anaphylactic shock from shrimp, it doesn't matter how healthy it is. So I think we all can use that word healthy as a justification to eat our binge food. And since we're in step four, I don't really want to address it, but I'm going to say one thing. That in the doctor's opinion, it tells us men and women drink sensually because we like the effect produced by alcohol. Mm. So I cannot get the effect from the steps, and I'm still getting the effect from the food. So my suggestion is, this is a fourth-step um, talk, is to get a sponsor because you are in step one. And define what your abstinence is. Be willing to... Yeah, well, I've worked... It, I have a food... I don't have a program sponsor right now, but I, I have a food sponsor, and we have... um we've, Together, we've decided sugar and flour are the two things I should stay away from. Well, once you have them down 100%, you have to get in the spot. But if you're okay. a real compulsive overeater, just abstaining from your food is not enough. That's I know. That's going to allow that restless irritability contentment to come up full force. The way I talk about it is when the food goes down, life gets loud. Oh, wow. And if I'm not quieting the food down with the steps, I'm going to quiet my life down with the food. So I, my suggestion is you know, I'm meeting in a second hour. There's people that are more than willing to take you through the steps. Identify those binge foods, put them down, and get into those step one chapters because that's where you're at. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Beverly. Roz G, time for your question. Good morning. I was unmuting. Good morning, Kim G. Thank you. My name is Roz G. Uh, and I'd like to just say that um, Carol Brady was my ideal mom, so I had a few chuckles when I heard you say that. But my question is, um, I have a sponsee currently who has really requested a few times that I give her a while to do this. Um, I told them, you know, no more than two weeks, uh, her. And she's like, well, I have so many and I need to, to focus on these resentments and, you know, I feel like I'm playing the people-pleasing game by saying, okay. So I would like to, you know, ask your uh, experience on that, please. Thanks a lot, Roz. The, the, 
The quote that came up in my head from the doctor's opinion is, I cannot differentiate the truth from the false. My alcoholic life is the abnormal one. If I'm working with someone, they don't dictate the rules. You know, I give them seven to ten days to do their entire inventory. If they want to have more time, then they can find another sponsor. You know, another sponsor might give people a lot more time. But I know what's most effective for me, and I, I find it dangerous to leave people in those resentments. People love their resentments. We fan them. They define who we are. They justify all our behavior. Of course they want to sit in that. You know, I remember being in an AA meeting, and this, this gentleman was talking about this promptly without regret, and someone in the back raised their hand and said, listen, I had 1,200 resentments. I couldn't have done it on that time. He goes, wow, you must be pretty effed up. And it sounds like you're dang proud of being so effed up. And I was like, oh, my God. But I, but I heard the arrogance in her voice. I have 1,200 resentments. So you just got to get quiet with God, Rob. How can you most effectively turn this message and you communicate that to your sponsee. And if they don't want to do it that way, they can find another sponsor. I don't let my sponsors, my sponsees dictate how I sponsor. I offer to them how I have the most effectively carried this message. And they can jump on the train and they can jump off at any time. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Roz G. Deborah S., your turn. Hi, hi. Good morning, and thank you, Leah and um, Kim, for this wonderful presentation. So, I love Kim how you talk about it being a skill set as a teacher. You know, I'm always teaching skills, and we want the kids to learn, and you only do it, you know, you know, by teaching them the skills. So, I love how this is a skill set. Um, I want to just ask you how um, you talk about um, the self-seeking behavior. I was always under the assumption that self-seeking is what I do because of this resentment. You know, my you know, if I was eating, I, I binged over it, or I get self, uh, you know, into self-pity, justification, critical, uh, you know, those kind of actions that I take. I ignore, I abandon, I, you know, whatever. So can you be, um, uh, am, I, am I doing it right? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Deborah. My feeling is if you're getting freedom from it, you're doing it right. You know, like I said, I kind of gave my interpretation of selfish versus self-seeking. There's nothing in the big book that defines it. But I just find myself thinking is when I go outside of myself to try to get easy comfort. You know, I'm seeking to have the right degree or the right boyfriend or, you know, when I get a size sick. I'm always seeking outside of myself to get easy comfort. Um, but if you identify it with other words and terminology and you get money from it, go for it. Um, like I said, I, I'm much more results-driven, um, you know, uh, and if you're getting relief from it, awesome. Thank you, Devora, for the question. And Jason Kay, your turn. Good morning. This is Jason Kay. Um, I guess I have two questions. One is um, resentments that keep coming back again and again. You put them in the fourth step. You do ten steps. On the, what's your advice on those? And do you ever look at the sex ideal uh, and right ideals for like work ideals or like family relationship ideals, like kind of expanding upon that idea and kind of seeing what your ideal is? Thanks, Jason. Um, you know, 
I always describe recovery is like a dimmer switch versus a light switch. So absolutely, there's certain resentments that are very persistent. And usually they're lifelong lessons, you know, um, with, you know, family members and, and things like that. Um, so I bring them into 10 and I bring them into 11 and I ask how to remove them. It doesn't mean specifically to afford to get removed overnight. What I have found is the resentments that used to take me out only really, really piss me off. And those that really, really piss me off are becoming really annoying. And those that are really annoying are becoming minor disturbances. And I personally am very, very grateful when I wake up 11 at night and think, wow, that would have been a major step 10 three, four years ago, and it wasn't even on my radar. So we grow away from this stuff. You know, I never recover from being a human being. Yeah, I think one of the misnomers is as a recovered person, I'm never resentful, fearful, or angry. Not true. The difference is when those crop up, I have a layout that I don't have to stay in them as long. But definitely certain things are, are, are lifelong, um, lifelong assignments, I guess, in a way. And the ideals, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm still single. I've never been married. So these ideals for me are really powerful, not in the, in the romantic part, but in, in the part. So I'm always massaging um, these relationships. For example, I told you my dad's coming over today. My dad's 80, 80, network. And he's been aging good. Now, my dad's a Marine, and he actually ranked nationally in table tennis as a teenager. His arthritis is so bad, he can barely move. And he's been in my garden for like 14 years. But I've lived here. He can't do the garden. He wants to do the garden. He's coming over today. I hate gardening. I hate being dirty. But I'm going to help him clean up. And I've been praying just to follow directions. Support him as much as I can because I think next year there's no way he's going to be able to do it. He loves to garden. How can I support him in his gardening? But once again, I'm massaging these ideals. My three-year-old, when he does come over to my house, I'm just 20 minutes from my parents. His hands are so bad that once, once he gardens, if he drives home, he could hurt somebody. So I have asked him, and I'm only his daughter, I'm not his wife, that if, if you really still want to garden at my house, why don't you have my mother drop you off? And then my brother, who works with me on the way home, because he my parents, can pick him up. And I said to him, I said, Dad, I said, if you hurt somebody in a car because you can't grab the wheel properly, I said, you never have to forgive yourself. So I'm always looking at how I can be more useful to my parents and not become, you know, a, a, in the way. Once again, with my brother, I'm a coworker. And I'm a sister, and those butt up against each other all the time. So I am always using these ideals um, in order to continue to grow because you know what happens? Life changes. And as life changes, my ideals have to change. And with that, I pass. Thanks, Jason K., for that question. Judith R., star one to unmute. Judith R. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Kim. Um, Kim, this is Judith R. in Vermont, gratefully recovered. Um, my question is mostly how do I transfer the skill set of four into ten? Um, and if you'd rather, I can just call you on it at home. Okay. So. Once again, I think there's going to be differing opinions how people get relief from 10, so not one is right or one is wrong. But I'll tell you my interpretation. 
I often will get phone calls from people saying they need to do a step 10, and what they're doing is the first three columns. They're telling you why they're, who they're pissed off at, and they go on a story of why they're pissed off and how they're so upset because it's affecting them. Page 66, we read it. What is apparent that this world and its people were often quite wrong, and to conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. I find when people do 10 steps in this first three columns, once again, it just gets people riled up. So the directions in step 10 is we go immediately to that fourth column. Where am I selfish, dishonest, self-taking, and frightened? What I have said for myself is I have a, you know, after doing lots and lots of 10 steps, I have a couple of plays and I invite different people on stage. And often the result of the 10 step for me is there I go again. I'm afraid I'm going to be laughed at. There I go again. I think I'm going to be taken advantage of them. There I go again. Don't they know who I am? In an arrogant way, and don't they know who I am? In a frightened way. So these 10 steps to me is a way to get relief right away. You know, I, I immediately turn the gun. Here I go again. But it, to me, it's taking that, that fourth column, which is what is blocking me. Once again, going to six and seven. And what I have found for myself is that six and seven, those defects are now my step one for life. I have not compulsively overeaten in eight years. Food is neutral. I am not cocky or afraid. The obsession has been removed. But you know what? I'm still a human being. And those defects are now what I'm powerless over. And the way I turn those defects I'm powerless over is by doing a step 10. And by doing a step 10, I'm identifying those defects that need to be removed in order for me to stay on block with my higher power. I hope that made sense. Thank you. Thanks, Judith R. Who else has a question for Kim this morning? This will be our final invitation. Star one to unmute. This is Camille. Irene B. Is that Camille? Camille G. Camille Madame. G. Irene. Madame. Star one to unmute if you'd like to put your name out for a question. Pete B. Pete. Anyone else? Great opportunity. I didn't catch that. Was there someone offering their name? Okay. Let's start off with Camille G. And everybody else, please mute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi there, Kim. Could you please take a minute to explain to me again that last column on the resentment inventory? I use it daily in my mind, um, and I always get tripped up with self-seeking and selfish. So I'll give you a quick example. I resent my sister for cutting me off because I didn't lend her money. Then I move through my column, and when I come to that last column, how do I define, let's say in that instance, where am I self-seeking and where am I selfish? How do you how do you look at it? Once again, I I, I as long as you're saying self, 
I would I wouldn't get too twisted over it. But let's say that was my inventory that if somebody is cutting me off. Did you say with money? Is that what you said? Yes. With money. Um, selfish is my money is my money, and I don't think people should bother with it because it's my my mine. Self-seeking is my sister should treat me differently. Who is she to not give me money? So the the idea is I'm looking inward when I'm selfish, and I'm looking outward when I'm self-seeking. But once again, even in the 10th step, it doesn't say selfish, self-seeking. It just says selfish, and it needs resentment into where self-seeking is. So I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, selfish, self-seeking, um, self-pity. Mm. As long as you're seeing self, I mean, one of the things mm. I think of is that step three part. What am I driven by? You know, that I, I feel, you know, it sounds to me, and I'm just, you know, saying this is me, it sounds like a sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to my own money, and I'm also entitled to her money, too. You know, so that, that often, um, I find that I face themes from that. And I'm like, oh, where else do I feel entitled? Oh, I feel entitled at work. I think I should be able to um, take a long lunch because no one else should be able to take a long lunch. <laughs> you know, um, so I find that what I happen with they do a lot of them, I find that these themes come up. And I'm like, here, and once again, the result of most of my 10 steps is here I go again. So you'd work with the theme of entitlement as, as a fear, you're saying? No, I just find there's certain themes that come up. So when you start to see those commonalities, which to me is right. step five, it talks about in step five that um, a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. So often I don't see those themes. I used to have a group, we had seven when we got together once a month and we would do step 10 work. And I had three very distinct areas that were bothering me. And those other three women showed me it was the same exact thing. I could not say it was the same exact thing. That's why I need someone else to come in who's objective that can look at it and say, I'm just going to use the word, I can forget what the circumstances were. Yeah. Oh, that thing you have with your family and the thing you have with your friends and the thing you have at work, that's all entitlement. Uh, oh, crap. Oh, crap. But that's how okay. I grow, is by other people coming in and having an objective viewpoint to help me see something I can't say. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Camille G. Irene, and I didn't catch your initial. Thank you so much for this wonderful um, instruction webcast and for your service and for your wisdom. And I have a number of questions. Um, first, one of one that I have that well okay i want to be a good girl i want to be a good christian i want to be a good human being because if i'm not i absolutely engage in self-loathing i absolutely hate myself because i'm a bad bad girl and all i want to do is be a, a good girl so therefore i should be selfless and do all these things for everybody, and now I'm working on that. But then you go to the other extreme, and, and, and then you don't do things for people because you're supposed to engage in self-care. Then you feel guilty. So, um, and you do things for people because they need it, but then you end up being resentful because you're engaging in a lot of self-sacrifice. Um, 
like uh, somebody doesn't have a place to live and they're going to have a baby and they need a place to live and they're trying really hard to to um, to overcome their circumstances so they deserve a chance, they need a hand because you help those who are helping themselves. But in the process, you know, I'm passed through the child's rearing years and I'm trying really, really hard to overcome my bulimia and my character defects are far more difficult than the bulimia, actually. I never thought that would be the case. And then then I'm torn between resentment and guilt. And let's say that let's say that I put in my fourth step that I feel guilty because maybe I recanted on an offer to come live with me to whatever degree with whatever boundaries. Or if I feel resentful because I don't recant and I stand up to my word. So how would you deal with that? Are you, can I ask you where you are in the steps? I am on steps six and seven. And that was another question I had because I've been working on this a while, not through a vision sponsor, but through a face-to-face sponsor. And I've been working on the steps for a little over a year now. And I know that you guys do it very quickly. And I had another question, which is, how long should it take to do the steps? Because you guys do them differently from the way that I do it. Okay. First of all, there's no such thing as a vision sponsor. Um, this is this is simply an overview anonymous meeting, and we focus on the big books. So when you talk to people, you'll hear a lot of different time frames, a lot of different, um, we all are focused on the direction, but people might approach them differently. Um, so I just want to make that clear. So I think sometimes people idolize, I have a vision sponsor. There's, there's, no, there's no such thing um, as that. Um, I have a whole bunch of things in here. Um, it sounds to me, and I'm just trying to mirror back what you said, is you are totally in self-will. You're about how I can do this and how I can do that. And if you're in six and seven, that makes total sense because you're still driven by a hundred forms of fear. You're still driven by self, self, um, self-propulsion. So it's difficult. You can't do a step ten to get to a four or nine. So I think you're caught. This would be me. I'm just reflecting back what this would. If I was saying this, is I I would be totally in me trying to figure it out so I can get relief, which is the exact opposite of the steps. I'm speaking of power. I can remove that. You know, when you said this thing about the good girl, I remember someone saying to me years ago, because I would say, well, I, I want to be perfect. You know, good girl, I want to be perfect. And the mm-hmm. person said to me, Kim, maybe the problem isn't that you're not perfect. Maybe the problem is you have a pretty effed up definition of perfect. And that's what I realized. I had the expectations of what perfect was, which was not, it, it was unrealistic. And it was really, self, really was selfish the way I was doing it. There's a line in step three that says we aren't a self-seeker even when trying to be kind. So let's say that, that I said I'm, I'm a good, like you're saying, I do for other people. I self-sacrifice. I'm, I'm always trying to help other people. What I realized is that I was a self-seeker even when trying to be kind 
because I would say, Irene, can I be helpful to you so that I can manipulate you so you can do what I want because I need to feel comfortable? Or Irene, let me help you because if I help you, then you can tell everybody in a vision for you what a wonderful person I am. Or Irene, let me be helpful to you because at least then you won't tell everyone in a vision for you how much I'm a, I'm a jerk. And I realized that in and of myself, I could not be useful. I could not be helpful. And what I have found with these defects is because I'm dishonest, I don't work on honesty. What I do is I turn that over to a higher power, and when the dishonesty is removed, I naturally become honest. I don't try to be a good person. What I do is I, remove, I ask God to remove the blocks that are, that are blocking me from other people. I have to tell you, my undergraduate degree is in psychology, and I know now, looking back at it, the reason I got a psychology degree was because I was trying to figure myself out. And if I could figure myself out, then I could make myself be happy. That is the exact opposite of the spiritual life. A lot of the terms that you were using, which all of us use, are very much cultural, self-care, you know, um, all this stuff. My suggestion is dig into these steps. Personally for me, being at six and seven over a year is way too long in my experience. It may not be in yours. I would talk to your sponsor about that. If you feel that you need a sponsor, then I would, I would do that too. But just understand that it is the relief we get is in 10 and 11. And the faster we can get through these steps to 10 and 11, the quicker we're going to get some freedom. The longer we stay in it, we are going to be confronted with all the reasons we ate, and in and of myself, that is, I'm going to eat. I used to think step one was don't eat no matter what. I realize now step one is I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat unless I have a spiritual experience. Beautiful. Um, with what you said, let me see if I understand you. If we do the step 10 once we get there, that's when when we prevent the buildup of human emotion and you're looking at the at what's blocking you from your higher power and from your inner self. And in the process of doing that, that's when you get through recovery. That's simple way to put it. Step one through nine gets us unblocked. Step 10, 11, and 12 keeps us unblocked. My opinion, most healthcare programs have, have watered down one day at a time to one day at a time, resisting our food, our drugs, our sex, whatever our addiction is. The big book never mentions one day at a time until we get to step 10, and it says a daily reprieve. So I get unblocked, but I only have a daily reprieve. I wake up every morning. I, I often use this example. I'm Cinderella, right? So because of these steps, I get to go to the ball. But at midnight, my beautiful dress becomes rags, my carriage becomes a pumpkin, and those groomsmen become mice. And I wake up every morning, the, the little stepsister. But because of this program, if I do these, this work, then I could be Cinderella and go to the ball every single day. So I use 10 and 11 to stay on block but I need to do one through nine to get on block so that 10 and 11 has to have to wait. Beautiful. Got you. Thank you so very much. And thank you so much thank for you. your service. Thanks, Irene B. Matt M., your turn. 
Thank you for your service. Thank you, Kim, for your service. Good morning, everyone. This is Matt M. Compulsive here from New Jersey. Yeah, I'm on step 12 with my sponsor. My sponsor is a really tough sponsor. I need to have that no-nonsense kind of sponsor because, for me, I've become a master manipulator, and I'm very easy to, I'm very easy, um, easy on myself a lot of the times. I need someone who's going to tell me, like, listen, I need you to do A, B, and C, or else you're going to eat again. But um, I, uh, I'm not sponsoring yet, and I want to. My sponsor hasn't cleared me for it yet, but he's going to pretty pretty soon. But uh, I have someone I'm just taking through the book. I'm not their sponsor. And um, but I they want my they want my help just to go through the book and it feels funny when I'm dealing with them because they're struggling with the food and my sponsor says to be honest with them and not harsh, you know you say what I mean mean when I say but don't say it mean and the things that they're telling me remind me a lot about myself and the things I used to do and it sounds to me that he might not be ready so I I did say to him I apologized afterwards but I did tell the truth that maybe you need to do some more eating. But the thing is, like, he has a sponsor that's over over 10 years, and he hasn't really worked through his steps. So I'm thinking to myself, like, I want to suggest to him maybe he get a different sponsor, but I don't want to cause harm by doing that. I just want to be a, a, a useful member of the program and just work into the book and just do a big book study with him. So can you give me any suggestions, Ty, so I don't overstep my boundaries and don't say something I'm going to regret? Thanks, Matt. You know, you know, I really love the language of working with others versus sponsor. I don't know if you guys know the origin of the word sponsor. It was not in the big book. So what had happened was there, you know, back before there were real meetings, is what they would do is they find out about an alcoholic. They would send some alcoholics out to their home, and they would basically take them through steps one and two in like five, six hours. And then they'd bring that guy to Bob's house. And Bob would open the door, and someone would have to sponsor them into the house. You couldn't just walk off the street and go into Bob's house. You had to be sponsored in. And at that point, they went up to Bob's bedroom. They made him make their surrender, which was one of the step three, and they actually would vote on whether the surrender was good enough, and if it wasn't, they made him do it again. And once they surrendered, they bring him down to the family room, and they basically didn't go to an AA meeting until they were at step four. So that word sponsor... My prejudice is a sponsor for my first 17 years was I took their food and I told them what to do. I managed their life. My biggest challenge, Matt, on a daily basis is to quit playing God. So what I do is I work with people. If someone's willing to sit down with me and go to the doctor's opinion, I don't worry about labeling it. I don't, I don't care if I'm their sponsor or not. How can I be useful to this person? But I have to tell you, too, when I got to step 10 and 11 and I, someone told me I was recovered, I didn't believe him. I, I was experiencing this 10-step thing, but I'm like, come on. I've been away 17 years. You're telling me in the six weeks I did these steps and recovered, that makes no sense. The moment I felt recovered was when I was taking someone through Bill's story, and I realized I was talking in past tense. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm recovered. So whatever you label it, to me, if you're willing to open that book with someone, you're going to get the benefit out of it. Who cares what happens to them? Not to sound mean. But they can take it or leave it. Now, I think our ego wants us to be the one to take them through the steps. But I have to tell you that people who respected me in my recovery are not the people who, quote, unquote, sponsored me. They were people that were willing to tell me the truth, that would help me with a paragraph, that, would, that, would, that I would have some prejudices and they'd help me um, face them. So I am so excited that you're at step 12. I've heard you over the years. I'm so excited for you. So my feeling is you now can do step three, right? You're going to bear witness to those you would help of the power of thy love, thy, thy way of life, right? So my feeling is keep witnessing that. 
and, and try to detach from the outcome. I don't tell anybody to drop their sponsor, but I will say that, wow, that's way too long for me to go through the steps, which is what I just said to Camille. I'm not telling you it's right for you. I'm just telling you that a year and a half doing the steps is not, is not, would not have helped me. I would have eaten. So I try, you know, I would talk to your sponsor about it, but understand if somebody wants to recover, you can't say anything wrong. And if you, someone doesn't want to recover, you can't say anything right. But what will happen is that no matter what happens, your recovery will become stronger and you will be more dedicated to this program. And that's, that's the gift of working with other people. Thank you, Madam. Pete B, your turn. Star one, unmute. Thanks, Leia. Can you hear me okay? I hear you well. Uh, Pete B, uh, compulsive overeater, recovered today by God's grace and mercy. Kim, thanks for taking the meeting. Uh, your presentation had depth and weight, and I really appreciate it. I guess what came to mind was not specifically in, in step four, but you know, there's been a lot of talk about step ten, and I guess, I guess. I kind of scratch my head and think to myself, if I've, if, if I've been restored to sanity and I've ceased fighting everybody and everything, why, is, why like, do I have to do a 10-step every 15 seconds when I feel a certain way about a certain thing? And I'm just, I'd just be interested in getting your insight on, on, on that particular matter. Like, am, I, am I recovered if every you know, person who makes a left-hand turn from the right-hand lane uh, is, is offending me. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just a little bit confused. Thanks, Pete. I mean, I can just tell you my experience. As I'm finishing up my step nines, I immediately get into step 10, right? I don't sit there and try to finish all my step nines before I start step 10. I vigorously commence this way of living as I clean up the path. So as I'm digging into step 10, in the beginning, I don't know the skill set. So I'm doing a lot of step 10 in order to feel comfortable with the skill set. And what happens is my step 9s decrease because as I'm digging into step 10, I'm not causing harm because I'm, I'm stopping that, at, um, those defects from, from um, me acting on those defects. And then as I dig into step 11, and these three practices in step 11, I'm becoming more connected with my higher power, and my step 10s decrease. Because I'm connected with that power, so I'm not getting disturbed. But what I find is I unravel the same exact way. If I let up on my step 11, all of a sudden I'm getting disturbed more, so I'm having to do more step 10. And if I let up on my step 10, then those thoughts are becoming actions, and I'm having to do more step 9. So my personal experience is now that I'm eight years in, step 10 I probably do a couple a week because I'm very grounded in step 11. And in step 11, one of the questions is, is there someone that I need to speak to? So if I see something happening over and over again, disturbances, I know that I can't see it, which we talked about in a prior question, where I need someone who's objective to help me see that. But for me personally, I had to practice step 10. Like I said, I used to, I used to do it. I used to go to the bathroom a lot. So at work, every time I went to the bathroom, I would do a 10 step because I didn't even realize when I was disturbed. So I was doing four, five, six, seven a day, and then calling someone at night to review my index cards at the time. And as the years went on, no, I didn't have to do as many step times because, you know, people weren't taking me off as much. But if, if somebody cutting me off in traffic doesn't bother me and for a while, and suddenly someone cutting me off in traffic bothers me, 
my experience is usually there's something else going on. I need to say, okay, why is this bothering me now when it hasn't bothered me before? And usually there's something that I'm ignoring in my 10 or my 11 that needs to be addressed. But once again, I just believe whatever brings people freedom. I know people that, you know, 20 years in do 15, 10 steps a day. And if that brings you freedom, do that. If you, if you, um, you know, so I, I, don't, I don't like to judge anybody by what they need to do to have freedom. Once again, I, 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 actually, you know, um, Chris, Chris B. Um, me and me and Pete live in the same area. He he has talked about the fact. Not much you talk about like Chris because I know Chris. Um, he talks about how to get past the mechanics and get into the experience. So that's the goal: to get out of the mechanics and get to the experience. But how I get to the experience is I have to make sure that I understand the mechanics. Um, so wherever you are in your recovery, whatever brings you freedom, go for it. And then if you're starting to feel restless, irritable, discontent, maybe be opened up to, to doing the steps in a different way and calling people and see how their experience is in 10 and 11. And I you see people do them different ways. And you know what's wonderful is I disagree with a lot of people and I have a lot of conversations about it and I respect the way that they do it and they respect the way that I do it. We each support each other because we know that we're both experiencing freedom through the step work. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Pete B. Our final question comes from Marie F. Marie F. Star one to unmute. Marie F. All right, perhaps she had to step off the line. I want to thank everybody who posed questions this morning, and, of course, thank you so much, Kim, for offering your experience, strength, and hope to the line this morning. Very valuable presentation and um, sure helped so many. It's instructions and clarity. Greatly appreciated. We're going to close from page 164. You'll find it in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.